This is like the election that will never go away. Do you hear what I'm saying? We thought it was all over last Tuesday, didn't we? It's, it's still going on. Uh, and you would think you'd be able to come in here on Sunday morning and kind of get away from all that. Well, you're not. <laughs> I'd like you to open up to Joshua chapter 5. What's he talking about now? Joshua chapter 5. We took a pause last week, and now we're back to our study in Joshua. Let me just go through this chapter, 1 through 15. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted. And there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gilbeath Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today... I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him and said, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word i got a good question that we should ask ourselves this morning. Who, whose side is God on? 
Whose side is God on? That's the primary question of Joshua chapter 5. We're going to look very closely at the answer. On a morning when the entire nation is wondering pretty much the same thing. Who's right? Who's wrong? Whose side is God on? Well, we're working our way through Joshua, um, one of the most brutal books of the Bible. So brutal it would be easy to dismiss it, dismiss a book like Joshua maybe as being old, maybe as being historic, maybe not very much little value in a modern age like today. But Joshua is part of the Bible for a reason. It's part of the biblical narrative. Uh, Paul tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God, and it's useful and valuable in our lives. So it's important for us to see how Joshua fits into this biblical narrative, uh, how Joshua fits into God's overall scheme of things. There's nothing in here that is merely informative. It's all meant to change us, to mold us and shape us into his likeness. So the first thing that we must do if we're going to read Joshua with some level of insight is for us to understand that the Bible is God's story. It's not our story. It's God's story. It is God's self-revelation. So while we can learn a lot about ourselves when we read the Bible, our primary goal should always be to read the Bible to learn about the character and nature of God. The more we learn about the character and nature of God, the more we will learn about ourselves. And primarily what we'll learn is how desperately we need God. So here's what we've learned about God so far. In chapter 1, we, we found out that his best blessings do not always come easily. Now that was a life lesson. What we learned about God, though, was the, the principle of sacrifice that God blesses uh, through sacrifices. Greatest blessings come through great sacrifice. In chapter 2, we found out that fear will make you desperate or it will set you free. And in exploring that, we saw God's omniscience, how God knows everything, everything that happened, everything that is happening, and everything that will happen. We, we looked at the concept of the already and not yet, even as things are being played out. We saw that God knows how it will end because he's ordained it. In chapter 3, we found out that we're standing on dry ground. And we saw God's omnipotence, God's unlimited power, uh, the power to get us where he wants us to be by his hand alone and to do it on firm ground. That firm ground was Jesus Christ. So we're not going to cover chapter 4. We're only looking at... 10 chapters in Joshua all together, so we won't cover each one of them verse by verse. But in chapter 4, we find out why God had Joshua pick those 12 guys in chapter 3. Remember, he had to pick one guy from each tribe. Uh, they, were to, uh, one, th- they were to carry stones. Each one of them would carry a stone and put them in a pile in the riverbed, in the middle of the Jordan riverbed, as a remembrance of God's mercy, of his grace of his provision. Um, And they put them right where the ark stood as the people crossed. The ark stood between the people and the oncoming water. The ark was safety. The presence of God is safety. The rocks were a reminder to coming generations that, that God's goodness and God's grace has provided for his people. And for good measure, Joshua has those 12 guys do a similar stack of stones on the western bank of the Jordan as well, again, as a reminder. Both of those are testimonies for the Lord. So, as we take a look at chapter 5, 
Um, the title of this sermon is Are You For Us? Part 5 in our series of The Promise and the Land. We find that the testimonies that started in chapter 4 continue. Joshua 5 can be break, break, broken down into five more testimonies of the presence and the power of God among his people. Here they are. In verse 1, we see the panic of the heathen. I, I love alliteration. I started out chapter 3 using P's, and I'm just going as far as I can until I run out of P words here. So we see the panic of the heathen. Uh, in verses 2 through 9, we see the purification of the people. Even got a double P there. In verse 10, we see the Passover of the Lamb. In verses 11 and 12, we see the provision from the Lord. And in verses 13 through 15, we see the presence of the Lord. Now, there's a progression here, and we're going to walk through it and see where it leads us. So, let's take a look at our passage for the day. The first testimony we see is the panic of the heathen. The panic of the heathen. And we see that in verse 1. And here's what happened. Israel crosses the Jordan, and the Amorites and the Canaanites tremble. They're, they're, they're afraid. Now, here's the Jordan River. That's that red line right down the middle there. And right about here is where they crossed, where the little red arrow is. And Israel's, as we heard in the story of Rahab and the spies, Israel's reputation has preceded them. It's gone ahead. People all over the regions know who Israel is. They know about all the victories that God has given them, and their most recent victories gave them these areas over here to the east. Okay? So, once they make it across the Jordan, all of the people here, the Amorites, and all of the people here, the Canaanites, know, they see what's coming. They see that everywhere God's people go, they have victory. They just roll over people. Notice that the wrath of God, because that's what's coming down upon them, isn't it? The wrath of God, it terrifies them. They're terrified. But you know what? There's never any evidence of conversion. They're terrified, but they're not transformed. Their panic will bring nothing but death because they refuse to acknowledge, they refuse to bow down, they refuse to worship the one true God, even as his people roll over their kingdoms and take their kings captive and slaughter their people. The panic of the heathen. The first sign that we see that they don't belong to God. They don't belong to God. So, let's move on to our second testimony, the purification of the people. Look what God has them do in verse 2. The inhabitants of the lands are running scared. And instead of going after them, Instead of taking advantage of their fear, God has the army pause and tell Joshua to circumcise the men. Now, if you don't know what that is, younger folks, talk to your folks later. If I was in the army, I'd be like, what? <laughs> Aren't we going to battle? I'm not so sure this is a good idea. May seem a little bit out of place for an army at war, Amen. But if we look at Genesis 17, we see where this comes from. We see that God promised the land of Canaan to Abraham's descendants. This was the covenant 
that he had established with Abraham, or the covenant between Abraham and God. But God warned Abraham that anyone, listen, anyone who was not circumcised would be violating the covenant. That's part of the covenant. Violating God's promise. God's promise was predicated on Abraham's obedience and commitment to do what God told him to do. And beloved, God doesn't forget these things. I think a lot of times we think that enough time has passed that God's probably not thinking about that anymore. But he doesn't forget. It's been over 400 years. Circumcision was the mark it was the mark of one who was sold out, one who was committed completely to God, one who belonged exclusively to the Lord. Circumcision marked the entrance into the covenant community. And, and the army that was standing on that west bank had not been circumcised. They were not yet part of the covenant. Therefore, they were not eligible to possess the land. It was part of the promise. Now this is important. because We need to recognize that God had blessed them. God had given them victory. Certainly had walked with them for the last 40 years. He certainly had provided for them. They were the beneficiaries of what we would call God's common grace. Grace that is poured out on everyone. But they were ineligible for God's greatest blessing, a permanent home. They were ineligible for that permanent home unless they bore the mark of God. Now that would be big news for those people that call themselves universalists. Those people that, that believe that God is going to somehow save everybody because God is just so adorable. He's so loving. He's so gracious. He's so merciful. And He's so gentle. And He is all those things. He is all those things. He is loving and gentle, but only those who belong to him and bear his imprint will garner his greatest blessing. Everyone else, and this is what we see here, everyone else who do not bear his imprint are going to be terrified. They're going to be terrified of him. All those Amorites and Canaanites do not bear the mark of God. In verse 3, we see something a little strange, at least in modern eyes and ears. A remembrance of the circumcision. You can go read that after lunch and talk about it. Move on to verse 4 and 5. We see why all this is necessary. The ones who grew up in the wilderness belonged to God, but had not yet been marked by Him. Listen. Listen they weren't going to go into the kingdom on the coattails of their fathers. They weren't going to go into the kingdom on, based on somebody else's faith and commitment. This was going to be personal. God was demanding that they make their personal commitment to him based solely upon his word and his commandment. God was demanding that they demonstrate a commitment to holiness. A commitment to holiness prior to receiving the land, prior to receiving the blessing. We saw in chapter 3, while they were on the other side of the Jordan, uh, that they were instructed to consecrate themselves. Now, we don't want to make uh, 
uh, uh, we want to make sure that we, we see the difference between what's happening here. Over on the other side of the river, they were consecrating themselves. They were preparing themselves for service to the Lord. They were setting themselves apart from all other peoples and devoting themselves to doing his work and his will. And now God has revealed his power to them. He did that by holding the waters back so they could pass through on dry land. And now he commands a commitment to holiness. And in their obedience and their commitment to this holiness, look what happens. The reproach, the reproach, the sin of disobedience that their fathers carried with them is rolled away and they're cleansed. They will be set apart, but in a deeper way now. God's people who bear his sign will receive his greatest blessing. For those in Joshua's time, that sign was circumcision. Circumcision is a, was a sign that God changed this person into one of his children. And while the issue is complex, we need to look at baptism as something similar. It's a sign. It's a sign that we have entered into God's community, the church. A sign that we are set apart for his purposes, that we are partakers of the new covenant that Christ brought. In some ways, baptism is similar to his mark. It's a spiritual mark, though. It's not a physical mark. In these verses here about circumcision, we see that God's people are set apart, consecrated for his purposes, and marked as belonging to him. Circumcision. What all this means is that God is putting them step by step through a process, brothers and sisters. He's putting them through a process called purification making them holy. This is a shadow. It's a shadow of what we have here in the church today when God sets us aside and marks us belonging to him. The process of purification begins in us, except we have a different word for that process. We call it sanctification. The good news is this. The process begun in us, the new process has a guaranteed end. We will be sanctified in spite of all of our stumbles and all of our failures that we may experience. God will complete the work in us of making us holy. Now we know this is true because Paul tells us so. Philippians 1.6 And I am sure of this, that he who began, he God, who began a good work in you, us, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Take a look at that verse later on. The you is plural. It's not singular. He will make his church pure. He will sanctify his church. God will complete his work in us just as surely as he's going to give Canaan to his army of people. How do we know it's true? God says it. God says it's true. So we see the, the shadow of all of this modern-day marking and setting apart in chapters 3 through 5 of Jonah, of Joshua. It's about purification. He sets the template that we will walk through in our sanctification, consecration, then bearing the mark, then purification. The purification that Joshua's men endured was only temporary, though. Our purification, our sanctification, in and through Jesus Christ, is eternal. It's eternal. 
So the teaching on purification leads to our third testimony, the first Passover, and that's in verse 10 of our passage. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. Now, we need to understand, the Jews had not celebrated the Passover since Sinai. They neglected the circumcision, they neglected the Passover. We're not told why, we're just told that that's what happened. God told them to consecrate themselves, this army. He set themselves apart for a service. Then he purified them. And now they sit down and they have this meal. And they remember. The meal is a remembrance. It's a remembrance of the goodness of God and his presence among them. That's what the meal is there for, to remind them that God is with them, to remind them that God got them this far. God brought them out of Egypt and got them across the river, and now they're standing there on the plains of Jericho. And the meal reminds them of that. For their act of submission and being circumcised, for their act of obedience and observing the Passover, they're blessed with our fourth testimony, provision from the land. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain, and the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. The Passover, that, that ritual, ceremonial remembrance of their deliverance is celebrated on the first anniversary, if you catch the dates there, of the very first Passover. And with that observance, the manna ceases. Now this is significant, and it, it, it reaches right into us today. God has met their needs every day for over 40 years. Food falling out of the sky, they complained about that. Water coming out of rocks, they complained because they didn't have enough. Once they're set apart, though, once they've gone through this process of purification, they no longer have that day-to-day -day need. They will be sustained by the fruit of the land. The fruit of the land that God's given them. Beautiful metaphor here. And th this is going to help us as we go through Joshua. One day, you and I as believers will be fully sustained by the riches of heaven. We will have no need for earthly resources. Canaan, and keep this in mind as we go through Joshua, Canaan is a metaphor for heaven. The promised land is a metaphor for heaven. God's taking Israel to the promised land to show us that he's going to take us into his presence in heaven. Canaan is a metaphor for heaven. It is an imperfect symbol of the perfection that we will experience in heaven. Don't miss what's happening here. God has brought them through the waters. He's delivered them into the promised land. And without a single battle, without a single battle yet, He's given them what? He's given them a new life. He's given them a new home. He's given them a new be beginning. He's given them hope for the future. It is in every way a symbol of rebirth, a renewed people. The covenant is renewed. The sustenance is renewed. God's making everything new again. Canaan stretches out before them. It, it, it had to look like Disneyland Plus. This is the land of milk and honey. 
This is the land that was promised in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Listen how it was described to Moses. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out of the valleys and the hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord, your God, for the good land he has given you. God has delivered his children from slavery. God has delivered his people through and from the wilderness. He has ushered them through both, and now they live in a land of abundance, a type of abundance that they would have been unable to imagine just a couple days before. These people lived where there was nothing. They grew up, they were born and grew up where there was nothing. Had to be an incredible moment. As incredible as it was for them, the army of God, there were battles ahead. And you know, it would be easy in the overwhelming moment of abundance that they saw before them, it would be easy to feel invincible, wouldn't it? It would be a heady feeling. You could feel the victories coming. You've seen it happen. You're expecting it to happen again. It would be easy for them to feel like God was on their side, wouldn't it? Let me tell you something. There's danger in that feeling. There is danger in that feeling. And we find out why in our fifth testimony, the presence of the Lord. Verses 13 through 15. Look at 13 first. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Now let me show you something. Here's where Gilgal is, right where that red mark is. Okay, It's about, about two miles from Jericho. Um, they haven't really located the site, but it's right in a radius about two miles from Jericho. There's a little bit of a flat plain between them, not much. Gilgal is going to become significant as we go through Joshua, it gets even more significant as you move on into the Samuels. Uh, we find out it, it becomes a capital. Uh, but for now, this is where Joshua and his army are, are encamped. Joshua is out reconnoitering the area around Jericho. There, there's a, just a little mini lesson, a little sidebar lesson just in this. Joshua has been assured of the victory. He's, he's seen God move miraculously. But He's being prudent to prepare for the battle. You see what's happening? He's confident, as we will see, of God's promises. And Joshua knows what you and I have come to know while we've been together for a while. Some participation is required. Some participation is required if we're to experience God's fullest blessings. So Joshua is participating. He's coming up with a battle plan. He doesn't want to go into Jericho blind. 
He's making sure that he's familiar with the area and with, with Jericho so that he can be prepared for battle. While he's out there, he's surprised by a man, a man who startles him and is clearly a warrior. He had a sword in his hand, and this man is impressive looking enough that Joshua, with some concern, and maybe more than just a little bit of boldness, goes up to him and asks, in effect, whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? Now, it's a pretty reasonable question. This guy is a war machine. He wants to know who he's fighting for. As we saw in verse 1 of the chapter, everyone in the region knew that a battle was coming. They had heard about the victories all along the way. Israel had easily defeated two of the most powerful kings east of the Jordan, the, the kingdom of Bashan, the kingdom of Sidon. Now they're within two miles of one of the most significant cities in the entire region. Jericho sits on two, two major trade routes, one going north and west, uh, north and south, the other going east and west. The people of Jericho are terrified. The Amorites are terrified. And, you know, I, I always thought that was kind of inter interesting. They're terrified because God's coming. Th these people have, in an odd way, they have faith, don't they? They believe that God's going to conquer them. They don't have saving faith. They don't have transformative faith. But they completely trust that God's going to come in and annihilate them. It's what happens when you don't bear his mark. Everyone's waiting for the first battle. And onto this stage walks this warrior. Joshua sees him. And what we know about this is Joshua doesn't recognize them. What we don't know is what Joshua's thinking. And I ran through the possibilities this week. I, you know, he may have been thinking maybe he's from Jericho. Perhaps he's a mercenary. Maybe I can hire him. Perhaps, perhaps Joshua should go get some help. Maybe this is a problem. Perhaps he's here to help Joshua. He says, whose side are you on? Perhaps a soldier has heard about God. Perhaps he's heard about Joshua. Perhaps he wants to be on Israel's side. Perhaps he wants to be a winner. Perhaps he wants to be on a winning side. Perhaps a warrior knows that God is on Israel's side. Notice something about Joshua's question. Joshua only offers two possibilities. Doesn't it? There's only two possibilities here. Are you for us? Are you for our adversaries? It is totally beyond Joshua's comprehension that there can be any other answers to this question. The warriors for Israel. Joshua can include him in his battle plan. If he's against Israel, well, Houston, we may have a problem here. Here's Joshua's problem. He's asked the wrong question. Joshua has asked the wrong question. He has assumed that God is on one side or the other. I think it's safe to say that Joshua believes that God is on Israel's side. All the indicators are there. God gave Israel the land. He blessed them. 
He assured them that they're going to have victory. They're going to own the land. Surely God is for Israel and against the heathens. Whose side are you on? Loved ones. Joshua's asked the wrong question. Joshua has asked the wrong question. And it becomes obvious when the warrior answers him. Look in verse 14. And he said, no. Do you understand the irony of this? Joshua said, you on their side or our side? And and he says, no. Joshua offers two possibilities, and the warrior says, no, I'm not on either side. The warrior is not on either side. But look at this. Look what he says. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Now I'm here. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? The warrior is the commander of the army of the Lord. Now, the text isn't really clear who this is, but it's safe to assume that the army he's talking about is a heavenly army, a spiritual army. The commander may be an angel. He may be an archangel. He may be the pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, that we would call this a Christophany if that's who he was, a, a, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. I think he is because he didn't refuse the worship that, that Joshua offered him. But he may be God himself, in which case this would be what we call a theophany, an appearance of God. Whoever he is, he comes with the full authority of the Heavenly Father. He bears the full authority and impact of the Heavenly Father. That is absolutely vital for us to understand, because what happens next is even more important. He's on neither side. We see that. But we also see this. Joshua, being a wise and godly man, immediately prostrates himself and begins to worship. And we see the commander of the earthly army bow down to the commander of the heavenly army. He submits to him. And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. I, I, I always pictured this as Joshua standing there kicking his sandals off, didn't you? Except he's laying down on the ground. His face is in the dust. The warrior says, take off your feet. It sounds, it sounds like what happened to Moses, doesn't it? In the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3. There's nothing holy about the dirt. We can't go to that spot and pick up some of this dirt and have miracles occur from it. But understand this. The mere proximity to God, even if it's through one of his angels, radiates with God's holiness and God's glory. And the warrior wants to make sure that there is reverence in this moment as Joshua goes down on the ground. And worship, it's not just worship, but there's reverence and awe. It's certainly an indicator that God is going to be with Joshua just like he was with Moses. We have to carry that away from here. But here's, here's another lesson for Joshua from this passage. It should be a lesson for us as well, maybe, maybe a timely one. You see, Joshua was viewing God's involvement 
in all of these proceedings through his own self-centered perspective. He was viewing everything that was going on from Joshua's perspective. He knows that God has chosen Israel. He knows that Israel are God's people. He knows that God has promised this victory. He'd even seen a few victories, but somewhere along the way, Joshua, maybe even the Hebrews as well, began to think of those victories as their victories. The commander shows up at a crucial moment. The Jews are about to take the promised land. And God wants to show Joshua and all of Israel, and maybe even us here today, that he's not on their side. They are on his side. Do you understand that? There's a subtle difference there. But there is a profound difference in that perspective. The victories belong to God. All of the glory are His. They didn't win the battles. And that's going to become clear in just a couple chapters when they go up against the village of Ai without God's presence. They have not chosen Him. He has chosen them. So a better question for Joshua to ask would have been, who are you? Who are you? Again, the difference is subtle, but it's profound. It's a difference between reading our Bibles to find out about ourselves, to find out about our journey, our gifts, our identity, or reading our Bible to find out about God, to find out about His character and nature, to find out about His honor, His glory. Joshua's Joshua's first question should have been, who are you? It should have been directed towards the warrior, not towards himself. Joshua's looking for the bennies here. God graciously teaches Joshua this lesson. And the timing is absolutely perfect because I'm going to tell you something. God is about to ask Joshua to do some of the hardest things he asks anybody in the Bible to do. It's a reminder that Joshua is to do everything that he does for God, to serve him, to be obedient to him, to worship him. To do it all for his glory in obedience to him. We're going to have to keep our minds on this as we go through the rest of Joshua. And that's going to start with the next chapter when we look at Jericho. If we don't, this book becomes a quagmire of vignettes. And they're very difficult vignettes. Without the perspective of who God is, Some people will read Joshua. It can seem like Joshua's only out there on some kind of rampage that God's helping him with. Helping Joshua meet his goals. Helping Joshua gain his victories. Helping Joshua become a great leader. and Helping Israel become great people. You see the difference in the perspectives here? Right here in this chapter, we find out this whole narrative is not about Joshua. It's about God. Not about, not about the glory of the conquest of Canaan, but about God's glory. And God will reveal his glory in the purification of his people. You see, we kind of get off of the purification narrative and get on to the victory narrative, and we forget that they've got to be purified first. God's intention is to purify his people. God's intention is to purify his people. 
that might be a good idea for us to keep in mind over the next couple weeks. That might be a good idea for us to just keep right there before us. God is not on anyone's side in any election. God has won every election that was ever held. He's sovereign over it. And regardless of where you are in the political landscape of the 21st century, God is neither politically for you nor politically against you. What he's after, what he's after is your testimony. What he's after is your purity. You know, there are people out on the streets upset over the results of the election. It's funny how quickly things can switch, isn't it? But there are people in the church antagonizing them. That's not what we're here to do. I want this whole thing to be over with. But it keeps on popping up day after day after day. Everybody's unhappy. And everybody's unhappy because their expectations of what God was doing are not being met. Isn't that what happened when Jesus walked into Jerusalem? He's here to save us from the Romans. No, I'm not. I'm here to clean the church. Kill him. That's what happened. We're here to be purified. We are here to be sanctified. We're here to carry his message to the people that are so upset. They don't need a new president. They need Jesus Christ. I would say the same thing for the rest of us. Well, you're going to have to decide. The same thing that Joshua had to decide, isn't it? Whether you're on his side or not whether you're on God's side or not. If you're born again, if you call Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, then you will model Him in all that you do. You will put Him on display in how you walk through your day. Grace and mercy and love will flow through you in the same abundance that it flowed to you. And if anger and disappointment and pride flow from you as a result of this election, then you are not putting God on display. Don't get me wrong. WBF, hear my heart. We have been preparing for this time right here. We have been prepared for this time. All the work that we have done over the last 16 years together has made us, this group of people, ready for this moment. You have been prepared for this time. You are a group of biblically equipped witnesses for Christ. You know and you have learned well this lesson that your regenerated life is about God. It's not about you. You know that. And now it's time. Now it's time for us and churches like us to rise up and show the world what Jesus Christ looks like. Show them what God is like. That's what Joshua has been called to do in Joshua 5. Those are our marching orders here today. 
I think we've learned that about ourselves. What have we learned about God? Give me just a couple more minutes here. We know now how to walk a more Christ-like walk. In a world that seems to be just fraying at the seams more and more every day, we know how to portray Christ. But what have we learned about God? The lesson we've learned about God is in the flow of the last three chapters. We've seen it. God consecrates his people, sets them apart, chapter 3. He, he gets them across the Jordan, chapter 3. He delivers them into the promised land, chapter 3. Gives them a reminder of his power and his grace in chapter 4. And in chapter 5, he marks them and purifies them. All this occurs at God's hand. Without God's involvement, none of it happens. It happens by his presence, by his power. He makes it all happen. What we see in it is God's sovereignty. God's ultimate authority over all things. He's in control. He's the one with supreme authority. He's going to bring the victory. He's going to do the purification. He's not on our side. We're on his. Well, that tells us something that we need to know as well. Because all this points towards Jesus Christ and the cross. We're seeing a shadow here. We're seeing a template. As we do in so many other places in the Bible, God is revealing a little bit more about himself and how he functions in the creation that he made. When his son takes on flesh, he's given us clues. So that when his son takes on flesh and dies for our sins... The Jews don't see this. They didn't get it back then. We have the advantage of having the full Bible, of being able to read it and look back and see what happens. But when Jesus takes on flesh and dies for our sins, we find out in Him, we are what? We are consecrated. We are set apart. And He gets us across. He gets us across the divide between life and death to the other side. He delivers us into the presence of God. There's the pattern right there. He gives us a reminder of His grace. We have communion and baptism, and we are marked, loved ones. He has marked us by the indwelling Spirit who will lead us and guide us day to day, closer and closer to the Father, and we will be purified. We will be sanctified and used for God's glory. And we can be sure of that because inherent in everything we've seen today, we've seen that God is sovereign. He says that's how it's going to happen. And we know that it'll happen that way because God is 100% faithful. All we have to do is surrender ourselves to what he tells us to do. And what he tells us to do is be messengers of the gospel. Be a reflection of Jesus Christ. Be molded into his image. Conform to his image. Put God on display. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We praise you. We hear the truth, Father, but we confess that there are times when it's hard to walk in that truth. We all have our struggles from time to time with the things that you say, Father, but we know that in and of ourselves we can't be obedient anyway. But you've given us your spirit, Father. You have enabled us to walk the walk that you've called us to walk. We pray, Father, that we would have the fortitude, that we would have the commitment to surrender to your Spirit, to surrender to the sacrifice that your Son has made for us, Father, that we might be those glowing witnesses that you call for, that we might be set apart, not part of the fray, 
but part of the truth. That we'd be messengers of truth. Help us, Father, to yield to you. To surrender everything we are and everything we have for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.